Most statistics suggest that over 90% of pregnancies that have cardiac activity or a heartbeat will progress and won't miscarry. So we feel pretty confident that once you've had that first visit, you're probably gonna be okay in terms of um, telling folks. But we also know that if a miscarriage is gonna happen, typically it occurs in the first trimester. So that's where you often hear to not state anything until after that um, trimester is complete. Been There Injected That is a TMI podcast about going through infertility and all the hormone injections, awkward moments, and nervous breakdowns along the way. I'm Elise Ash. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Been There Injected That. Today, we are talking to Dr. Kanasha Gleaton. Dr. Gleaton is board certified in gynecology and obstetrics and the medical director of Natalist. She received her MD from MUSC and completed her residency at Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. And we are so happy to have you, Dr. Gleaton. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored. Uh, So first, I was hoping you could maybe introduce yourself and share a little bit about where you live, your role, and yeah, what your focus is. Certainly. So I am currently living in Charleston, South Carolina. I consider this home, and I've been here for probably nearly 20 years. And I practice as a generalist. OBGYN. So I treat GYN issues as well as pregnancy issues, but my passion really is pregnancy as well as the journey of getting pregnant. I had a couple of hardships during my time when I was trying to conceive. And so I really seem to relate well to these patients and I take the approach of encouragement and helping them understand the process and the final destination. So yes, I'm really excited about our topic today. Yeah. And I mean, it is exciting to talk to a medical professional who has some type of emotional understanding of this journey to parenthood as well. And a lot of the stressors and complicated feelings that come up too. I think doctors are great, obviously, at recommending specific tests and looking at results and offering great recommendations on how to move forward. But sometimes I think that emotional component can get a bit lost. So I'm sorry that happened to you, but for the community, it's kind of good because we're like, oh, awesome, Dr. Gleaton knows what we're going through. Yes, it makes such a difference, I think, in the approach to the patient. So going back a little bit, Dr. Gleaton, um, can you kind of tell us when you decided to go into medicine? Was there a specific moment? Is that something you always wanted to do? You know, interesting, for as long as I remember, I said that I was going to be a doctor. And I think, you know, most kids state that they're going to pursue some career, but I never really altered from that. And so I remember being like seven or eight and I would be at home during the summer, just reading like the book of home remedies, you know, where they (laughs) had all these types of things you could just do at home with concoctions to treat ailments. And so I always had a medical interest. And then I remember just being devastated when my mom opted me out of the puberty class. And that should have been a, um, a red flag that this is what I'm passionate about. But Wait, like um, a, the puberty class, was that like a yes, health class or something? It was a health class that okay. you had, parents had to opt in. It was in sixth grade and okay. they opted me out clearly because of concerns about abstinence and, you know, all these sorts of um, public issues that go along with health and reproduction. And I was just devastated because I was interested even back then. And I wanted to know more about it, probably because my hormones were raging, but also probably because I had a medical interest, even as young as in this being in the sixth grade. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, sometimes like the less, you know, or the more curious you are, the more passionate you are to like figure it out like almost withholding that information for you and your personality as a kiddo was probably like 
you're like, no, I will learn about this. Yes. I will make it my passion. You're right. So was there a specific moment um, while you were in medical school when you decided to specialize in gynecology and obstetrics? Or was that kind of early on you knew you wanted to focus there? So no, you know, actually, I thought I wanted to be a pediatrician. And I entered medical school with my personal statement saying, you know, my motto and my mission and why I want to go into medicine all about pediatrics. And then so our third year, first two years of medical school are didactics, which basically mean you sit in a lecture hall all day and pretty boring. But in the third and fourth year, you start to do your clinical rotations where you get hands on training. And so I, during my third year clinical rotation of pediatrics, I was so excited. And from the first day, I knew that was not my calling nor purpose. I hated hearing babies cry all day and the parents were just super anxious and it was just not pleasant for me. Um, And, you know, seeing kids in pain is certainly not something that um, we as parents nor doctors like to see. So I really just disconnected with that decision right away. And I realized that I needed to figure it out. So that sparked a lot of anxiety in terms of just not knowing where my next step would take me. And so fortunately, my next rotation was OBGYN. Walked in first day, talked to someone about an Oprah episode for like 30 minutes. And I was like, this is it. Like I am (laughs) all about women, women's issues, empowerment. And it's just been my calling. And then you spoke very briefly, Dr. Gleaton, and I'm wondering if you'd be willing to share a little bit more about your own journey to parenthood and how that maybe was misaligned with how you were expecting it to go? Absolutely. And I'm very open about this because this is not a unique story at all. So I see it, you know, daily in the office, but many of us delay childbearing and that's exactly what I did. Um, I knew the statistics, right? I'm a practicing OBGYN, completing medical school and residency. I knew the statistics stated that, you know, you want to try to get pregnant, you know, before age 35. And so around age 35, I started trying to conceive and did not really expect many issues. Maybe I was 34, around that age. Didn't expect issues, but I really had a longer course than what I anticipated. And it was certainly unexpected in my, the way I explain it. You know, I had Uh, several miscarriages and really they were unexplained, which I think um, makes it a little more difficult because when you hear unexplained, you hear not fixable in my mind. And so those miscarriages, as well as the long journey to fertility, waiting for our first child, which took about three and a half years, really helped me get an understanding of how important it is to educate people on the journey and how it's not an automatic guarantee that you're going to come off birth control one month and get pregnant the next. Yeah, I think there's a huge misunderstanding and misconception that women have. And we're just taught when we're so little how easy it is to get pregnant. And so when you come up with any kind of delay or confusion or things kind of take a sharp turn, I think that that is very um, unexpected for a lot of people. And then all of a sudden you're finding yourself really anxious. You don't know where to turn. Google is incredibly overwhelming with like really weird content and you like find yourself on some weird forum from 2007. So absolutely. (laughs) So Dr. Leiden, the main topic of today's podcast is miscarriages. And I'm hoping to get some answers from you about some common questions that we hear from the community in different Facebook groups, in different Instagram conversations, because miscarriages are incredibly common. But I think there are a lot of questions that we have as women and individuals, and especially for those of us who 
have been trying for a long time and um, might keep experiencing miscarriages. So I'm hoping we can speak a little bit more about that today. Yeah, for sure. So Dr. Glean, how frequent are miscarriages? What's the data around frequency? You know, when you look at the literature, at least it's, it's hard to get a great statistic because I think it depends on what population you're um, looking at or evaluating, but also when the miscarriage is determined. So we know that up to 50% of pregnancies are unrecognized and those are still considered chemical pregnancies or miscarriages. And so you might see a statistic that says up to 50% of pregnancies end in miscarriage, but many women are just a couple days late for their cycle or just kind of skip a cycle, never check a pregnancy test and have a late cycle just because the pregnancy never really progressed in a proper fashion. And those happen quite frequently. But of our clinically recognized pregnancies, the statistics usually land somewhere between 10 to 20% of recognized pregnancies will end in miscarriage. Going back, you'd mentioned the phrase chemical pregnancy. This is something that we hear a lot um, in the infertility community, especially. Can you give a definition of like what a chemical pregnancy is versus a missed miscarriage? I feel like there's a lot of different terms that we use in the community, and I just want to be really clear about kind of what the differences are. Yes, for sure. So a chemical pregnancy is typically one where a patient gets a positive pregnancy test. It's clearly obvious that it's a positive test. It's not like a mistake. They usually check three or four and they're really excited. And then usually within like a week or so, they start bleeding like and almost bleeding just like it were their normal period. Um, And it lasts almost for the same amount of time as a normal cycle. And so they recheck a pregnancy test and often it still is mildly positive or it's negative altogether. And so we often can document what happens in the blood work by checking the pregnancy hormone level, HCG or beta HCG. And we see a sudden sharp rise, but it doesn't rise or elevate as expected. And it usually kind of rises to about 20 or 30 points. And then it goes right back down to being negative very quickly. And this correlates with the fact that yes, fertilization did happen, And yes, we do know that there was some attempt at implantation because that's what causes the HCG levels to become positive when that implantation occurs. But very quickly, for whatever reason, that pregnancy didn't stick in a sense and quickly started to shed along with the rest of the lining of the uterus. um, And it appears to be like a, a menstrual cycle. I mean, the caveat with all of these questions is obviously this is case by case and body by body and everything is totally different. But I'm curious to know what causes miscarriages? Why do they happen? Yeah, that's, you know, that's a common question. I get it all the time. And you're absolutely right. So every specific case is different. But when I'm in the office, because this is such a troubling and often confusing topic, I like to start the conversation with patients in a categorical fashion, stating that, okay, let's look at this from various aspects in these different categories. And there's certain elements within categories that can contribute and cause miscarriage. The most common one by far is genetics. So genetic factors often lead to miscarriage. And we know this is often age related. So we expect an increase in miscarriage rates after 35, but really very sharply um, after 40. So we know that like up to 35 to 40% of miscarriages occur in that um, when you're over 40, you know, so that's the risk for that. 
So that's one of the main causes. And um, just in general, though, even if you're not over 40, 60 to 80% of early miscarriages occurring in the first trimester are genetic related. And then when in a pregnancy is a miscarriage most likely to occur? We know in the community that there is often this, don't tell anyone until 12 weeks. Um, Is that 12 weeks purposeful in some way? Is that medically important for some reason? Absolutely. I think it is. I tell patients to follow their heart. And some patients, it's just very painful to hold that information, even from close family members. And, you know, usually I do recommend, even if you haven't had a history of a miscarriage, to at least allow documentation of the pregnancy first for the very reasons we already discussed, meaning lots of chemical pregnancies, early genetic factors leading to miscarriage. So when I state documentation of the pregnancy, I don't mean getting a positive pregnancy test. I do mean having your first ultrasound, which usually occurs anywhere between six to eight weeks of pregnancy to document that, yes, there is a pregnancy. Yes, it's in the proper location. So it's not in your tubes, but it's in the uterus. And the most important, yes, there is a heartbeat. And so that is like we look for cardiac activity. And once we see that cardiac activity, we feel pretty good about that pregnancy most statistics suggest that over 90% of pregnancies that have cardiac activity or a heartbeat will progress and won't miscarry. So we feel pretty confident that once you've had that first visit, you're probably going to be okay in terms of um, telling folks. But we also know that if a miscarriage is going to happen, typically it occurs in the first trimester. So that's where you often hear to not state anything until after that um, trimester is complete. What are some of the most common symptoms of a miscarriage? When should someone seek medical attention if they think they might be having one? So, you know, interestingly, I find that when I am doing ultrasounds for a new OB visit in the office, many patients have no indication at all that they've miscarried. And I don't know if it's just because um, I'm not really exactly sure. But I do know when you are about to miscarriage, often it can be very obvious. And the most associated symptoms are, of course, heavy vaginal bleeding, heavy cramping. Those are the main two that we often see. But again, sometimes there are very subtle findings that I previously, earlier in my career, I would discount. And these include having a sudden worsening of symptoms and then the symptoms just vanishing or going away and kind of feeling normal again. And that those symptoms mainly are the nausea and the vomiting often just reverse or breast tenderness decreases. Those can be early symptoms that your pregnancy levels were going up and now they are starting to decline. And so less of those pregnancy associated symptoms are noticeable. And while this is not always reason for concern, it can help one understand um, whether the pregnancy might be going in the right direction. It's so confusing because I think sometimes we are so in tune with our bodies, especially really early in those pregnancies. And especially if we've never been pregnant before, we're just like, oh, this is a new thing. This is a new pain. This is a new, this hasn't happened before. And so I think sometimes we're just like really tuned in and it's hard for patients to understand like what is worth concern and what is kind of normal. And especially for fertility patients, IUI, IVF patients who've waited for this for a long time, it can be really stressful. Like I had spotting my first trimester after our successful transfer, and it scared the crap out of me. Absolutely. And rightfully so. You know, we know in the OBGYN community as providers that up to 50% of pregnancies will be associated with spotting or even bleeding. 
we know that, but when you've gone through such trials and successfully achieved pregnancy, whether it be assisted or not, and then to start seeing bleeding, it's really terrifying. And so I think that also speaks to the importance of having a provider that you trust that will listen and not just blow off your concerns, but also will take you seriously and not only reassure you, but go the extra mile to say, well, let's bring you in for an ultrasound. Let's take a look and just reassure you that your baby is fine, you know? And so I think you definitely have to make sure that you have a provider that's committed and understands, you know, your, um, your goals there. Totally. And can ask you the right questions. I mean, for me, I remember when I was spotting, there were a lot of questions around like, what color is the blood? How thick is it? Like, uh-huh. And I remember talking to my nurse and telling her, you know, oh, it's just a little light and, you know, it's kind of a brown color. And I remember her being like, okay, well, if it's like bright and red and gushing, if you're soaking a pad, like that's when we're, we're concerned. This sounds like not necessarily like normal, quote unquote, but definitely not something we're worried about at an emergency level yet, but keep an eye on it. If you start cramping, like, I just remember feeling like this is the end of the world and my nurse and care team made me feel like, okay, let's keep an eye on it. We hear you, but this happens a lot. (laughs) It happens a lot. And that's one of the, and you know, unfortunately that's one of the dissatisfiers for patients. So they say, well, you know, I called two days ago and I spoke with a nurse about this and she told me everything was fine. Go rest, get off my feet, drink some water and just watch it. And if it's not bright red, then it's okay. And then they come in for their next OB appointment and there's not a heartbeat, you know, or the pregnancy or they subsequently develop heavier bleeding and do miscarry. And there's often the thought that what happened could have been prevented. And so there's a lot of concern and dissatisfaction in that regard. And so I think it's important for us not only to try to reassure patients that this is likely normal because 50% of pregnancies will have spotting, but also to go the extra mile and say, if you're super concerned, why don't we bring you in and take a look, you know, because of course we can't alter the outcome and patients don't always understand that, but just doing the extra things to make them not have a stressful weekend and thinking that they're miscarrying the whole time. I think that's just super important. Can you have a miscarriage without knowing or without having any symptoms? Yes. I find this so common in the office, like patients show up and they're super excited with their mate and we're going for the ultrasound and suddenly they're, it's nothing in the uterus, or most often there's a sac with the fetus with no heartbeat, um, or there is not a fetus at all. There's so many variations of early pregnancy loss that are typically related to genetic problems, and you just have no idea. And it's really startling for patients because they think they should have known, like, well, I haven't had any bleeding and I still have these pregnancy symptoms and this must be wrong. And so there are various ways to kind of figure out, like, and help uh, convince patients that, yes, this pregnancy is not doing what it should. Let's check some pregnancy blood levels and let's repeat ultrasound in a week because certainly it's not an emergency, but it's definitely very frustrating to have a patient come for such a joyous experience and leave just pretty devastated. We'll be right back. Is infertility stressing you the F out? The emotional toll of doctor's appointments, hormone injections, answering questions from nosy aunts about when you're going to have kids. It's a lot. And while there are a bunch of great communities, blogs, support groups, and other resources out there, sometimes you just want to talk to like one person. One person who actually gets what you're going through, shares your values, and possibly even your diagnosis. That's why we created Fruitful, a fertility mentorship service that connects people trying to grow their families with a mentor, 
Someone who's been where you've been, but is now on the other side and available to offer emotional support. To learn more about Fruitful or sign up, visit fruitfulfertility.org or check us out in the App Store or Google Play Store. Now back to the show. Is there a way to know why a particular miscarriage happened after the fact? There are. I like, I think we touched on this earlier. There are just so many reasons and I like to think of them in categories like genetic factors. There can also be hormonal factors. Like if your thyroid level is lower, if you have diabetes or polycystic ovaries or low progesterone, you know, there are immune factors that include, um, a, a common syndrome. I wouldn't say common, but a commonly associated some syndrome with miscarriages called antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. And then there are lifestyle factors too, like certainly um, excessive alcohol and, you know, um, obesity and other things can lead to miscarriages. So I think the important thing after having a miscarriage is to understand that it was probably genetically linked, 60 to 80% are. However, Definitely don't just skip your visit with your OBGYN provider, but definitely get your questions answered. Go so that you can get a thorough, comprehensive medical history that should not only touch on your family history and miscarriages in your family, but also your personal history. Because we can do lab work and we can do genetics and we can look at your uterus to ensure that you don't have an anatomical factor or an anatomy factor like a fibroid or a mass in your uterus that would cause you to have recurrent miscarriages or a wall in your uterus known as a septate uterus. So there are various factors that can be determined or evaluated to see if you do have a reason for your miscarriage and many of them can be fixed. So it's very important to do that. But unfortunately, 65% of recurrent pregnancy loss never has an identifiable cause. And I think that's frustrating as well. What are someone's chances of having multiple miscarriages? So that's a good question. I think it's important to know that most women who have one miscarriage, their next pregnancy will likely be successful up to 65%. And I use this statistic a lot in the office to encourage patients like, yeah, this didn't end how we wanted it to. However, we do have hope. And I think it's important to help them realize that. And so often women are concerned that this will continue to happen again. And because 60 to 80% of pregnancies do miscarry, it's very likely that in their reproductive journey, they will have another miscarriage. But on that same vein, it's very likely as well that they're going to have a full-term healthy pregnancy as well. Yeah, that is something that people say to women post-miscarriage all the time that like, at least you know you can get pregnant. And while mm -hmm. that's like a really insensitive thing for a friend or mom or sister to say, to know that there's truth to that medically and to have a provider who can sort of help you reframe what's happening to see that component. I think that's really great. I mean, that was one of my questions was like, are your odds higher of conceiving again if you were able to get pregnant at all? Yes. So we do know that if you're able to get pregnant, we know that there can be a 10 to 20% risk of miscarriage. However, you were able to get pregnant. So there's still an 80% chance that your next pregnancy won't end in miscarriage. So this is a very different scenario than if you have never proven fertility and you can't get pregnant. So I do think there is some um, opportunity for encouragement and optimism if you are able to get pregnant. How long should someone wait after a miscarriage before starting to try to conceive again? I know whether we're talking like physically or emotionally, when do you recommend that couples can start trying again? 
Elise, I'm glad you said that because distinguishing physical readiness as in comparison to emotional readiness are two different birds. And so from a physical standpoint, we often tell patients after you have miscarried, and this is not dependent upon how your miscarriage was treated, whether it was surgical or medical or spontaneous, after you have miscarried and you have one normal period, then feel free to try again. And this is different from traditional recommendations in the past that have recommended a three-month waiting process. We have multiple studies that have shown that physically your risk of miscarrying the next pregnancy does not depend on whether you wait three months, six months, or one month. So we know that there's no higher risk if you do not wait and you, again, try to conceive if you're ready. From an emotional standpoint, many patients are not yet ready. They feel that they're still healing and they still have a lot of emotional wounds that are open and need um, often need counseling, medication, and follow-up. And so I definitely think that it's important that both partners are ready to try again. Um, and once that happens, from a physical standpoint, your body's ready. Obviously, miscarriages aren't because the woman did anything wrong, but is there anything women can do to decrease their odds of having a miscarriage? Absolutely. So we often encourage patients to get a preconception visit with their doctor. And so a lot of the things that we know that can adversely affect pregnancies and pregnancy outcomes are reviewed in that visit. So I would encourage all of our listeners to go out and make sure that when you're trying to conceive, you not only get your ovulation predictor kits um, or your ovulation tests, um, start your prenatal vitamins, but you also check in with your OBGYN. There are things that we can look at, including your blood pressure and your weight and certain labs to see if you have like certain vitamin deficiencies that can decrease the risk of miscarriage and help you conceive more quickly. So I definitely think it's worthwhile to do that. What are some ingredients to look for in a prenatal vitamin? Do you have a favorite type or a brand that you recommend? I know there's like a million billion out there and it can be really overwhelming for people. Absolutely. So of course I'm biased, right? So I am the medical director of Natalis and you know, this opportunity fell in my lap and it's really just been a godsend. So the mission and the vision of this company are in perfect alignment with not only my um, journey in getting pregnant, but my vision for patients. So at Natalist, we definitely strive to have women focus on the vision, um, to build their knowledge, to own their story, and basically embrace their journey to getting pregnant. We know that everyone has their own path. You're familiar with this, Elise. And you know sometimes that path brings unexpected uh, circumstances that you weren't prepared for. And so just embracing that and understanding that this is a journey different from my neighbors, but still my own personal journey and I will conceive and my destination is pregnancy but also going beyond that. So pregnancy is just the first step, but we want to encourage patients and our clients to also have healthy pregnancies. So we definitely focus on making a prenatal vitamin that has all the ingredients that actually traditional prenatal vitamins sometimes don't have in terms of various factors that we have studied to ensure that pregnancies progress well and that your baby has everything it needs. That's awesome. I mean, I'm so glad to hear that Natalist is really looking out for this community and getting people on the right track and getting things started down the right path early. I think that's so important. Um, and then are there specific ingredients that you recommend that a prenatal vitamin have? Absolutely. So you definitely want a prenatal vitamin that has sufficient levels of folate as well as calcium, as well as iron. 
So those things are very important. And you know, if you look at prenatal vitamins, you're going to get the basic components in most of those. At Natalist, we pride ourselves on distinguishing our products and not just having the basics, but also ensuring that our products are um, free of artificial ingredients and dyes and things like that. Our prenatals are vegan. And we think that that's important because we don't want a lot of artificial fillers. We want vitamins that people feel comfortable with ingesting. And we also want vitamins that have low side effects. And so I personally take our prenatal vitamins. I know for sure that I have no uh, nausea or vomiting after taking our vitamins. And many of them with iron do have that, but I think it's certainly be because we have been very diligent about making sure that we have no artificial fillers, artificial colors, dyes, preservatives, those sorts of things. But also we are excited to be launching a new prenatal packet where we also include things like our DHA as well as vitamin B12. Many folks don't understand the importance of vitamin B12 in pregnancy and often folks are deficient. And so especially with the early nausea, vomiting and what we call gastritis, which is the lining of the uterus being inflamed. And so you don't absorb some of these vitamins. And so we're excited to basically offer more than what the average um, company would offer. And we pride ourselves on distinguishing that. Now, speaking as someone who spent many years taking prenatal vitamins, my biggest question is why are they so big? Why, why are the pills so massive? They're like impossible. I know. I know. And I tell patients all the time, I'm like, well, you know, you are on a big mission. You are growing a human. And so it would be great if they could be tiny, like a birth control pill, right? When you're trying to suppress ovulation. But when you think about it, we have tons of ingredients in these vitamins that are imperative for um, fetal brain and eye and neurologic development. Um, and so it's important that you get it all right. And those quantities are necessary often. And so it's important that the pill be a comprehensive pill. And you know, that's why we at Natalist have also divided some of our ingredients because we know that that large pill is as, as large as it may be often in some of our competitive companies, they just don't have the higher quantities that we know have led to better outcomes in pregnancy. So I just have one more question and that's really, you know, if there was only one thing that you could impart to women on their journey to parenthood, what would that be? There are so many misconceptions out there and misinformation. I'm just curious to know what's, what's one thing you wish you could tell all women trying to get pregnant? I think it would be, um, patience because we know that we stop our birth control or we stop using protection like one month and we really want to be pregnant the next. So I think patience is key persistence. And I think patience and persistence go hand in hand. And I have so many patients in the office, they get frustrated because their best friend is pregnant and everybody on Facebook is hat or they're all mentioning or announcing their gender reveals. And I think there is a lot of social pressure from family and friends to announce your pregnancy and to do it in a big way. And so I think patience and persistence would be the key to basically uh, enduring the journey, no matter how long or how diverted your journey may become. And at the end of the day, I tell patients this, and I don't think they believe me until they're on the other side of the obstacle, but I tell patients that often, most often you will get pregnant. I just can't tell you when. And I think just understanding that I expect them to get pregnant, like chances are you're going to get pregnant. Most reproductive women will get pregnant at some point in their life, not all, but most. 
I think hearing that just really helps prevent the spirit of discouragement from causing them to, you know, just have a, a negative mindset and not enjoy the journey. We all enjoy the destination typically, right? So we like to announce our pregnancies, but very few people talk about enjoying the journey and kind of focusing on themselves and making sure that they maintain the mentality that they'll need to get pregnant and carry a healthy pregnancy. Well, and I think that goes right to what you were saying at the beginning of the, of this question, which is we are not good at waiting. We're not good at not getting immediate results. And I think some of that is cultural. I think some of it is societal for sure. And wanting this, like lose 10 pounds in 10 days. Like we're just used Absolutely. to this, like <laughs> quick results. I'm going to pay a certain amount of money and then I'm going to get my result. And I can change my, my whole life in 90 days and what's the fastest way I can get my degree and what's the fastest way I can make $100,000 a year, like whatever that is. And so I think in general, the fertility thing is so tough because it is so out of our control. And so we're used to being able to do our homework and study and Google and do all the things and we want to be great students and we want to like get an A plus from the universe. And this is just something that has its own timetable. <laughs> Right. So I would definitely say relinquish your control. I think that's a great one, Elise, just because this is something we can't control. Even when we get pregnant, we can't control all the factors that um, will go into our pregnancy as well as our delivery and our birth story. You know, we try to make a birth plan that's like very specific and, you know, that's just so unrealistic. So enjoy on the journey, live your own journey, build your knowledge along the way. Thank you so much, Dr. Gleaton. I really appreciate it and appreciate you taking the time to explain this, this community is really hungry for information and education and inspiration. And I think what you and your team at Natalist are doing aligns with all of that. And it's really exciting. And I'm just so happy to have more providers who not just look at our ultrasounds and, you know, fish around with Wanda in, in our uteruses. You know, I'm really <laughs> excited to have providers who understand the emotional journey of their patients and who can help provide information and recommendations based on like the whole person and not just what a test result shows. Absolutely. And if I could, Elise, I would definitely like to um, let uh, your listeners know about natalist.com. We have lots of information and we do have products, but most importantly, in my mind, is the wealth of information that we have on our site. And we do not have junk science. I think Hallie, our CEO, is passionate about ensuring that all of the authors and writers basically back up our claims with medical science. So we utilize like search engines and we have to you know, support our findings as opposed to just giving my anecdotal experience in the office. And so she is passionate about that. So we know that the information that is on Natalist is basically scientifically backed. And I think that differentiates us as well from lots of other mommy blogs and companies that might not have that benefit. So, so important. And we'll, we'll link to Natalist um, in the show notes. So Thank you so much, Dr. Gleaton, again, for being a guest and for helping shed some light on miscarriages and um, that whole world of trying to conceive. It's, it's a really tough thing to go through, but you are not alone. You don't have to go through it alone. Um, and we are here for you. So thank you so much again, Dr. Gleaton. Awesome. Thanks for having us. In There Injected That is produced by Fruitful Fertility and hosted by myself, Elise Ash. Thanks for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a rating and review. Subscribe to get updates and visit our website at fruitfulfertility.org. Thanks for listening.